O Lord, merciful and mighty, sovereign over all things, giver of your eternal word, be with us and guide us through this time and grant that through the reading of your word, the exposition of your word, and the remembrance, Lord, of your acts amongst us, that we might be transformed into the likeness of our Lord Jesus. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Philippians is one of these wonderful chapters, uh, wonderful in the sense that Paul writes it uh, to the, the people in Philippi, uh, and he writes a letter that uh, is filled with thankful, uh, thankfulness, thanksgiving, and love. He's uh, very much um, affectionate and uh, very personal to him. But you also have to remember, and you have your Bibles open with you, uh, this again on page uh, 1825, I think. Yes, your Pew Bibles, 1825. Um, you have that short introduction there. And one of the things that is mentioned in the introduction, if you actually care to read it, is that Paul is writing this in the midst of a prison in Rome. In other words, he's completed his three journeys and he's now on his final way uh, to see Caesar and he's awaiting uh, this appointment with Caesar where throughout his whole journey, particularly in his second and his third journey, he's told by the Holy Spirit that he's about to go to Rome and uh, in a way be, be receiving his death sentence there. So he's in prison uh, and he's uh, together with these guards who are watching over him and uh, conditions aren't going to be very good uh, in these Roman prisons. And yet he writes his uh, letter full of affection. And one of the things he says, uh, particularly in this uh, chapter 1, verse 6, is this, I, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so I've titled our sharing for this uh, particular Sunday, uh, Seeing It to Completion. I don't know about you, but I always find it very frustrating uh, when things are incomplete. Uh, you, can you imagine if you're watching a badminton game and then suddenly at the, towards the end in the deciding uh, uh, match and you, you're reaching the last final climax where the game is about to be over and suddenly a cat jumps on your antenna and the TV goes blank. <laughs> you miss that particular portion and it's a, a, a feeling of suspense and tension. Or if you've ever seen any such situation where things are not closed out properly, like when you have an argument with your significant other, your, it could be your boyfriend, your girlfriend, it could be your husband, wife, or your children. It's an argument that leaves a bad feeling at the end of it because you don't know how it's going to conclude. And so, Paul is faced with this issue. He's been given this task where he's supposed to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And to some extent, he'd done that. He'd gone all over the place, and in his three missionary journeys, he's now arrived uh, at this final point of what would be the center of the known world at that time, Rome. Uh, 
the, the biggest government, the equivalent of what America or China would be like for us right now, the center of power. And he'd gone and spread the gospel, but the gospel was still uh, in its infancy, still growing, and many signs and miracles had occurred, but it was not the national religion. Neither was it a case where everyone was very fervent and following, and in fact, he was being persecuted left, right, center, by the Jews and many others who either received it with open arms and amazement or ridicule, scorn, and persecution. And so in the midst of this, he's in this tension. Have I really completed my work or have I not? And these words in Philippians uh, reflect what is his state of mind at that point in time. Now, Paul also begins this letter, and if you, if you have your uh, uh, Bible open, you begin there in chapter 1, verse 1. I know our reading began from verse 3, but let me take you to verse 1, and it says, Paul and Timothy, okay, Paulus and Timotheos, uh, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, that word servants is actually a, a diluted word from the Greek word. The Greek word is one that denotes slaves. Of Jesus Christ. Now, why is it significant? Uh, if you, you can see from this diagram that in his other letters, he uses different credentials. And the Greco-Roman way of writing to someone is when I write you a letter, I also say who I am and I give you my credentials. And my credentials are relevant to what I'm trying to say to you. Okay, so in some parts, he says uh, he is Christ's apostles. In, in another part, he says he is uh, Christ's prisoner, uh, or he's a called apostle, or at the times he doesn't even say what, what his credentials are. But in this particular letter, he says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And the NIV translates this as servant. Now, uh, why this is of particular use is because as a servant or slave of Christ Jesus, it highlights this issue of humility and um, obedience and serving of the one who calls him. That is the position that Paul is in right now. He's a slave of Christ. He's doing this not because he wants to, but because he is compelled to and he acknowledges as Jesus is his Lord. And remember, he's in prison. He'd rather be with the Philippian church or where the church is, but he's in prison and it's and imprisonment because Christ is calling him there. How many of us are in that similar situation? You know, I you don't want to be in this position, but I'm here because I'm compelled by Christ to do his will. Now, that's a tough one. Uh, many missionaries generally face this. I've encountered them and they say, I love this place, but it's frustrating and it's killing me, but I'm here because Christ calls me. It's also in this famous uh, letter in Philippians that Paul gives this famous saying, which many of the times we say at our wake services, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, he would rather be with the Lord, but if he's going to live, he will live it to the full for Christ's sake. That is this whole idea of his slave. Uh, to Christ Jesus. 
Uh, the verse begins in chapter uh, 1, verse 3, where he begins the, the text of his letter. Uh, I thank my God every time I remember you. Now, let me pause a little bit and go back uh, to verse 1. It says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Standard greeting, okay? So Paul is saying, uh, this is who I am, my credentials. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And I'm addressing this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Can you turn to the person next to you and say, you're a saint? Now, the next question you should be asking back is, what is a saint? <laughs> How many of you have actually thought about this? Uh, one day, my son came up to me and said, Dad, what's a saint? And I thought about it and I said, well, you're a saint. I said, huh? <laughs> and I said, uh, typical of what most good fathers do, rather than give you a lame answer, you do this. You say, go and look at the dictionary. <laughs> and what does it say? So he went to the dictionary and he pulled it up and he says, uh, a saint is a holy one one who is called holy. Now, uh, if you're in a, in a Catholic church and they call you a saint, right, uh, there is a, a term which we call canonization. Now, canonization doesn't mean that we stuff you into a cannon and shoot you off. Canonization is a process where many other people have looked at your, your righteous deeds and the things that you've done, the miracles that you might have uh, done, and eventually term and call you a saint uh, because you are elevated as one of these holy people. And therefore, many of us, uh, if we were to look at it in that way, we would not say, yes, I'm a saint. But so why is it that when Paul writes his letter to the church in Philippi, which includes everyone, slaves, uh, rich people, poor people, Jews, Gentiles, all manner of sinners, he calls them saints. I remember having asked this question before and I said, are you a saint who occasionally falls into sin or are you a sinner saved by grace? Now, which one do you think you are in? I reckon that a lot of people would say I'm a sinner <laughs> saved by grace. But the reality is that when you look at every time that Paul addresses the church, he always addresses them as saints. Why is that? Well, because you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. So all your sins have been forgiven. You should no longer see yourself as that sinner who is in need of saving. You've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But it is also the mentality that you have. If I believe I'm a saint that occasionally falls into sin, in other words, I'm a holy one, not because of the things that I do, because the actual meaning of holiness is set apart, set aside for God's particular use. If you were a Jew and you were a, a priest that worked in a temple, the chopper that you use in order to butcher the animals and do the offering was considered an holy instrument, not because it glowed in the dark or it had some magical, mysterious, holy property, but because it was set apart as an instrument for worship. So 
when people call you holy, acknowledge it as something that I have been set apart, particularly as my calling as a Christian to follow Jesus. Not that I'm perfect, not that I'm better than others, but because I've been called and set apart. Now that matter of attitude is important because if you say I am a sinner saved by grace, the default thinking that I have is I sin. By default, I sin. So when I sin, it's my default. But if you think I am a saint and my default is I am called to be set apart and holy, then your normal pattern should be, therefore, that you live as a holy one, but you occasionally fall. It's a matter of that perspective. And so Paul, writing to these people in Philippian church, all of them, he calls them saints, and this letter comes to us as well as me reading it to you and calling you saints, people set apart to be holy, to be loved by God, and to call and follow Jesus. And that's why he begins verse 3 and says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Now, I, I, I smile right at this moment because I'd like to wonder, you know, how many of you, when you go to sleep, <laughs> you say, I thank my God for so-and-so in our church. Many of us do the other reverse, you know, I hate that fellow <laughs> stole my sparking spot. You know, didn't smile at me when I came to church and give me the bulletin or what. We, we tend to complain more than we are thankful. And Paul had many things that he could complain about in prison. But instead, he's looking at the things that he's thankful for. And it is a standard pattern of people of God set apart holy to be in thanksgiving. Not that they have very uh, cushy and lovely lives. No, these were people who were being persecuted, but they were people who had a right focus and attitude in being thankful. And so one of my questions to you is, would you be one of these people of thanksgiving? That when you remember the people that God has placed in your life, you take the moment to thank them, to give thanks for what they have done for, for you. First of all, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And in verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So what is the basis of his thanksgiving? That is essentially the first question that I want to ask. What is the basis uh, for Paul's thanksgiving? He's confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's the basis of his thanksgiving, that the one who began this work is also the one who will complete it. He who began it will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, he calls us a holy people, saints. He, he's thankful to God that his work, although as far as he can tell is not complete, that he can hand it over to the one who began it to begin with. Now, who's the one who called him to this ministry? God. How did he call him? Remember, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against all the Christians. And he was getting letters of authority from the Jewish leaders. 
in order to visit all the synagogues and haul up all these people in order that one day be tried and if needed, killed because of his righteous zealousness. And then along the way on the road to Damascus, God appears to him and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am the Lord Jesus. He appears. So Jesus, who began this work, will complete it. And then many times Jesus says to him, I, must, I will reveal to him how much he must suffer for the gospel. This is Paul's calling, how much he will suffer. So he who began this work, and although Paul saw that there was much left to be done, he could rest assured in thanksgiving that it wasn't his job to complete it. His job was to do what was set for him, to do it the best, and to be obedient even unto death, but it would be completed. Now, how many of you are in this situation that every day you face this mountain of work, that when you go on holiday, the mountain doesn't diminish but increases in height, that you are tired and burnt out Everyone says, go la, go and take a break, la, take rest. And your, your immediate thought is, yeah, I go and take a break, but no one's going to do my work when I'm away. And it will just be waiting back there three times larger in order to pounce on you when I come back. And so you get depressed because you have this disconnect between the amount of work that needs to be done and where you're at, the reality of your situation versus the expectation that the work needs to be completed. And some of us in positions of authority, what we do then is we take that big mountain and we put it on somebody else's table. <laughs> and he said, this is for you to do. Do we have this attitude of Paul that he deals with every little bit every day what he can but he realizes that the end goal, the completion of his work is not in his hands. It is in God's hand. And he who called us to this work will complete it. Now, my great assurance, in spite of all the things that happens in church, is that I know that I didn't want this job. Like Paul, I am called. Like Paul, I know my calling is to be like, uh, uh, like Peter. Your hands will be tied. You'll be taken to places you do not want to go. And so in a lot of calling and ministry, we're like, you know, sheep that are being led to the slaughter. You know it's an act of worship, but you know you're being slaughtered for it. And that the things that we need to accomplish may not happen in our own lifetime or may even occur much later. But we do it nonetheless because he, the one who calls us, it's his job to complete it. And so I do the best that I can. I leave the rest to God and I can sleep at night. Because no matter what piles up, he will find a way to sort it out. It's his church, not mine. I'm working for him. I'm a slave to his. That verse 6 also begins with this statement, he who began a good work, which is Paul's way of putting into your mind, who is this he? And what is this good work? Remember again, right, that Paul is in prison. 
Is that a good work? The Philippian church is facing persecution left, right, center from the world, from the Romans, from the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Jews and all that. They are facing a lot of difficulty and yet Paul is reminding them that he who began this good work in you will see it to completion. It's a reminder to us that our circumstances, our conditions are irrespective of what we perceive of it, a good work of God. Because He is using it in order to form us and shape us into the likeness of our Lord Jesus. If you ask me what are your goals in life, Pastor, you know, uh, it normally is quite simple for me to say, one, follow Jesus. Two, for what? In order that I will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Why does that matter? Three, because when I'm transformed, and even now, I am a child of God. These three key truths I hold on to for dear life. What is your objective? Follow God. Why? To be like Jesus. What will happen if I become like Jesus? I am reminded that I'm a child of God in the same way that Jesus is. And that nothing, nothing can take this away from me unless I give that up. But he who began this good work is the God of all creation. The normal pattern in the Old Testament and even the New, when they describe He, they don't use the word He, they say God Almighty, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, uh, the Prince of Peace, the King of the World. They give all these terms, but instead Paul gives it to you to fill in the blank. So who is He to you? Is he the one who called you? Is he the one that holds all things into your hands? Because this one, this person who began this, who called you out of your life to be a follower of him, he's the one who will complete the work. Not me. So I know that my salvation is not based on what I am going to do. That my calling and my ministry is not the things that I am going to do for this church. It is what God is going to do through me when I am surrendered totally to Him. It's a bit like a brush, you know. <laughs> if you're a brush in the hands of a painter, the brush doesn't say to itself, oh, I'm such a beautiful artist. No, the brush is a brush. It does what it's supposed to do, but it surrenders itself into the hands of the master painter who is the one who is doing the painting. And so he who began this work this master artist, he will complete it. I need to be the proper brush that does what I'm supposed to do. But many times, unlike inanimate objects, you know, if I take a stone and I drop it here, it will drop. But you ask a person to do what he's supposed to do, it, and his answer will be, it all depends. We have a will of our own and we choose not to necessarily be that instrument. So who is he who began a good work in you? He is the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, who sent his only son, that he who gave his only son for your salvation, how much more would he give for you in order for you to be saved? So I'm always constantly reminded, I came to faith not because I decided on my own. I did, I decided, but it was at the invitation of a most loving God. 
So I must ask myself, he who called me to be a Christian and to follow him, he who called me to be a member of this church, because some of you might say, yeah, I could have actually gone to any other church, more glamorous, more wonderful, or more faithful, whatever. But he called you to be here. And in all our commissions at every Methodist reception, we say your time, your treasures, your talents, your presence, that you would use it to follow God and to love God. So fill in the blanks. Who is this one who began this good work in you? Is it God or is it somebody else? Many of my young friends who leave the faith, they never really began the faith because they were called not by God but by their parents. Every Sunday, the parents say, come, get into the car, we're going to church. I don't care about whether you got what you want to do, what cartoon you want to watch or what game you want to play. I call you to follow, you follow. So their calling is their parents who are rightfully guardians and authors of their faith at that age. But as they grow older, it transitions. If you're a teen and your parent now says, I call you to go, you say, yeah, but now I'm 21. What are you going to do? Rotan me again? You're going to slap me until I'm blue and black? It's at the point in time, sometimes even younger, where they say, you can't do anything to me anymore unless I want to. And so it's imperative for most uh, parents to teach their children who is the one who's calling them. You exercise your authority for a while, but at some point, God has to be introduced into this equation. What is Paul's prayer? Verse 9, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. He uses a, uh, a double uh, addition, more and more. So in the Greek, it's a redundant uh, extra. Super awesome, <laughs> super great. It's a more and more, keep going, more and more. But it's also indicative that this love is already there. It's the love that first comes to us the moment when love comes in us through Christ. Uh, there's this saying that we say we love because He first loved us. And so now He's saying that this love will continue to develop more and more, but it's not an a, a infatuated, uh, flippant, flimsy, um, flip-flop kind of love. It's a love that is based on knowledge and depth of insight. Another word of this would be discernment, that you would actually grow to love people more and more, and it's not a superfluous way, but in better wisdom and understanding and discernment. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, which is a result of this growing in love. In other words, what Paul is saying is, as, you, as his prayer is that you grow more in love and you begin to be able to discern better how to love more and more deeply, one of the fruits that comes from that will be that you be pure, blameless and righteous. So as saints, we are a work in progress towards righteousness, purity, and blamelessness. 
And it should be the case that those who knew you many times later know you uh, as someone who is continuing to be transformed. Here's the big challenge though, friends, and this is an honest challenge to you. How many of you, when you really honestly ask for feedback, get comments where people say, you've been a Christian for a very long time, but I don't really see any change in you. You're still the same old grumpy person. You're still the same old person who is set in your habits. And you have no increased capacity to love. Now, if that is the case, something has happened to short-circuit this. And you need to investigate what that is. The purpose of small group, in a way, is to test this boundary and keep making people to grow and grow bigger, wider. But if you don't want to be a part of a community, then you're not likely to change. Because community forces you to change. It confronts you with your failure to change. So let me summarize that particular statement. Uh, what is Paul praying for, particularly in the Philippian church, and by extension to all of us? that your love would abound more and more. It is a love grounded in knowledge and discernment and that you would be able to discern what is excellent in order that you'd be sincere and blameless at Christ's return. And I'll add there at the bottom there, righteousness. What is righteousness? Saints who are righteous are people who do things that are right before God. A righteousness that is not based on what people are looking at. In other words, you know, uh, we only observe the speed limit because there's a speed camera. Or there's a policeman who is hiding behind a pillar about to shoot the gun at you. A righteousness where even when people are not looking, you do the right thing. It is ingrained in you. It is a righteousness where we do even when there's no one to catch us. I've had challenges in trying to deal with this because sometimes people come to me and we ask them, why did you commit this adultery? One of the honest answers from people was, well, because I felt I could get away with it. I was tired of all this relationship and I felt I was getting love from someone else and I felt I could get away with it. And so that is not the righteousness that we look for. It is one that in spite of all the temptation, we still want to uh, find the proper answer. Going forward, let me give you this uh, few thoughts. What you want to know, what you want to be, and what you want to do. What do you know about what you're thankful for? I'd urge you to be like Paul, that in the midst of his suffering and trial and tribulation, in the midst of his difficulty, he's thankful for the people that have supported him. He's thankful for the lives why people? Because people are eternal. They are the same people you will see when you enter into your eternal rest. And when you enter into God's house, the Father's house, you see Kawan Lama. Kakilang, but more than Kakilang. People who are dear to your heart, you're thankful for them because your journey is not just for now, but you are uh, redeeming people that will be eternal. They're your great crown. Uh, 
how are you transforming yourself into a state of being, a state of knowing? Uh, are you applying yourself to something that is certain to succeed? In other words, are you very restless because you know that your work is not complete? Or are you like Paul, that in spite of the fact that he's in prison, he is very assured and very confident and prays that this is all in God's hand and that whatever is happening to him is a good work of God. Now, that's a big challenge. Many of us ask, you know, why does God do this to our nation that we are encountering all this kind of, of condemnation that we're the target of politicians, that people are afraid of Christianization, pray also cannot pray. People get upset and say, well, this fellow prayed in front of us. Uh, we might think that it's terrible, but maybe it is God's mighty work. Because in the confrontation of this, I will, I'll tell you frankly that because of the Allah issue, people say that's persecution. True, in a way it is. But because of that, more people who are not Christians read the Al-Kitab than if we had just kept quiet about it. And having read that, we find that many people are transformed by it. You know what I mean. So are you being transformed by the things that happen around you and that the adversity doesn't make you more bitter and more uh, uh, filled with hatred? but the bitterness helps you to remember that which is good is really good. Dallas Willard had this to say, we should be more surprised by things that go well than we are by things that uh, don't go well. Because of the brokenness of this world, we would assume that more things go worse. And yet, there are good things that happen. So keep your focus on that which is good. What you focus on you in a way become thankful people. So apply yourself to something that is sure to succeed and what will succeed is God's work. Missions, caring for people, deeper relationships, uh, journeying with others in their pain, making new friends, sharing the gospel, those are eternal. Everything else like building your renovation and all the other stuff, temporary. Temporary comfort maybe but sometimes even greater frustration. Lastly, what will you do? What acts and attitudes of righteousness are you working on, maybe together with your small group, or together with your accountability group, or your social concerns ministry? Yesterday, we had the opportunity for a, a safety and security emergency response team. We were really happy to have, uh, I think in the end, about 25 uh, people who came to learn first aid, right, but also how to learn to respond to emergencies. Uh, and so a group of young people as well as very senior older people came and learned from uh, the Red Crescent Society how to provide first aid. Next week, they're having their second class uh, and it's in battle. And these people felt, you know, wow, I've attended one session, I've been so transformed that I know in the event that somebody faints or somebody goes into shock or somebody encounters an accident, I know what to do and I can be a blessing to them. And if need be, if someone has a heart attack, we know what to do. 
So these are acts and attitudes that basically are a righteousness that we are displaying unto others, not just for other people's sake, but for ourselves. My question to you, are you so comfortable that you say, I don't need all these things and I don't want to? Because I'd like you to be more uncomfortable about that. They ask, how is God challenging you to pursue what is right and good and to come out of that comfort zone? Let me end again with that thought. Shall we read this together, uh, beginning from the top? And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you that you take it out of our hands, Lord, that uh, the thing that we are unable to do the very transformation of our heart, strength, mind and soul is all in your hands and we are merely accomplices and people who are equally yoked to you. Teach us to follow your lead, Lord. Teach us to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And where we run forward ahead of ourselves, Lord, hold us back that we might step with you. And where we falter and stumble, Lord, would you lift us and cause us to walk beside you rather than be left behind. This we ask and pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.